I'd like you to open your uh, Bible or your study book for the Revelation study book to Revelation 6. Today we're going to be looking at Revelation 6 and 7. We'll look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We'll look at the martyrs crying out for vengeance. We'll look at people begging the mountains to collapse on them and to hide them from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. We'll look at 144,000 Israelites sealed and protected from God's wrath and a great multitude beyond number that are worshiping God and Jesus the Lamb. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Dave Bovenmeyer. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm partially retired, but I speak here every once in a while on Sunday morning. And so we get the opportunity to do that this morning. Before we dive into Revelation 6, I'd like to look a bit of an overview at four different approaches that have been taken throughout the history of the, of the church on the book of Revelation. And these are approaches that Bible-believing Christians have held. So let me just warn you first that Revelation is a complex book, and so you're going to have to put on your thinking caps this morning. We're going to uh, plow through some things that are going to take a little thought. I'd like to start by asking, what was the typical first century Jew's understanding of the kingdom of God? This chart describes it. The kingdom would come in one fell swoop. The Messiah would come. He'd straighten out the problems in Israel. He'd restore Israel to its former glory. And he'd bring in a new age of peace and harmony, both in humanity and in creation. After all, Isaiah had said that people would beat their swords into plowshares and that the wolf would lie down with the lamb and the lion uh, with the kid and, and that a uh, little child would lead them. And the, the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So how aesthetic they must have been when Jesus came preaching that it's time the kingdom of God is here, and not only that, but doing tremendous miracles that could only be done by the hand of God. But interestingly, Jesus had a different view of the kingdom. What he taught looked like this. There would be two comings of the Messiah King. The first would inaugurate the kingdom through his death, the death of the Messiah. Then he would return to heaven and then the kingdom would be consummated after, later, after an age, the end of the age. And we see him teaching this in the seven parables in Matthew chapter 13, all of which have the same basic point. And they all say that he would come gradually, the kingdom would come gradually, it would start out small and then it would grow over time, and that the kingdom would come quietly, even secretly, Largely unnoticed, quite different than what the Jews were expecting. Let's just look at a couple of the parables or talk about them. First, um, he said that the kingdom would be like wheat and weeds gr slowly growing together until the harvest, which represents the end of the age when the angels would come and he would weed the wicked out uh, from the righteous. The kingdom would start out like a tiny little mustard seed, but it would grow slowly until it became the greatest, one of the greatest plants in the garden. The kingdom would be like leaven, just a little bit mixed in the dough, but it would multiply and grow and fill the whole lump. 
The kingdom would be like a man finding a treasure in a field who went and bought that field. In the same way, the coming of the kingdom would be unnoticed by most. Some would notice it and buy it, but unnoticed by most. And again, the kingdom would be like a merchant who found an extremely valuable pearl. And he went and he sold all that he had and he bought that pearl. So here again, we see that the kingdom will come in a way that most, most don't even recognize that it's here. It'll become secretly, quietly, and gradually grow. So how does this apply to the book of Revelation? Well, the major interpretive question, I think, is how and where do the events symbolized in Revelation, how do they match either historic events or future events? We're going to look at four views. Three other views we'll look at this morning place the starting point for the visions starting in chapter 4 that we looked at last week to the end of the chapter. The starting point they place at Jesus' first coming. And the fourth view places that starting point right shortly before his second coming. And I believe that how you look at really two specific events will pretty much determine which starting point you choose. The first event is what we looked at last week. It's when the slaughtered lamb approaches the throne and he takes the scroll from the right hand of God and he starts to open them. So does this this correspond to the enthronement of Christ? He died, resurrected, was enthroned in heaven. Is that the same time when he starts to open these scrolls? Uh, Option A. Or does that correspond to the beginning of God's judgments at the second coming? Option B. The second event is Satan's expulsion from heaven that's described in Revelation 12. When does that happen? The Bible teaches that Satan was defeated at the cross. So does that, mean, does that include this expulsion from heaven, option A? Or will that expulsion happen shortly before the kingdom consummation, option B? Well, unfortunately, we won't be able to explore arguments for one or the other this morning. Hopefully, we'll be able to look at that in one of our panel discussions later on in the series. But I wanted to alert you of the importance of the timing of these, these two specific events so that you can be studying them, thinking about them on your own, if you'd like to. So now let's look at the four views. The first is called the pre- partial preterist view. The word preterist means past. And this view holds that the plagues of Revelation happened in the first few centuries after Christ, in the destruction of Jerusalem and of the Jewish nation, and then in the subsequent destruction of Rome a few centuries later. It's called partial preterist because not everything is in the past. The new heavens and the new earth described in Revelation 20 through 22 are yet to come in the future. And you'll see here a second black arrow above the red box. And this indicates the preterists talk about a coming of Christ in judgment on Jerusalem and the Jewish nation. Not a physical coming to the earth, but a coming in the skies above the city. And by the way, preterists would typically not agree with my interpretation of Jesus' parables that I just gave you. Rather, they would hold that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple marks the end of the age that Jesus was talking about in his parables. The second view is the historicist view. 
And this view, Revelation covers the course of history from the Christ's enthronement to the end of the age and beyond. And the view has very few modern adherents. But I'm including it because it was a very popular view in the Reformation, had sway for, for centuries over thinking about the, the, the end times. Some examples of historic, historicist, that's a hard word to say, historicist applications would be the breaking of the seven seals represents the, the fall of Rome, of the Roman Empire. Or the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 through 10 represent the invasion of the Roman Empire by the Vandals and the Huns and the Turks. And especially amongst the Reformers, the beast of Revelation 13 represented the Pope and the papacy. So the third view is the idealist or the symbolic view. Now you'll notice in this chart that the slide didn't change, that it's the same as the last one. Because the idealist view applies revelation to the same time period as the historicist view, but it doesn't attempt to apply it to any specific events in history. Most prophecies, they would say, portray the on, ongoing cosmic conflict of spiritual realities. And the visions may have many different fulfillments throughout history often happening in a cycle over and over again. So, for example, the beast of chapter 13 might be identified as a, an, a satanically inspired political opposition to the church, really, at any time. The harlot of chapter 16 might represent the compromised church or maybe the seduction of the world in general. Some have said that the idealist view sees Revelation as a theological poem presenting the ageless struggle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And the fourth view, the one that you're most likely most familiar with, is the futurist view. And it teaches that the events of Revelation 4 and following are yet to occur in the future. Futurists tend to take the visions more literally while still understanding that there is symbolism. Maybe the one reason they take it more literally is that they don't have to match it up to anything in history. It's, it's all in the future. They also tend to see the vision as affecting the entire church, not just a local area. For example, most believe that there will, will actually be cosmic signs in the heavens. The sun will actually turn dark and the moon to blood and the stars or maybe perhaps meteors will fall from the sky and, the mountains will actually collapse and the islands disappear. And when the vision says that a quarter of the people of the earth will die different plagues, it'll actually be a quarter people of the entire world's population, not just some local area. Futurists believe that the beast, often called the Antichrist, is a, is a man, a king, a future world ruler proclaiming himself to be God, demanding worship and mercilessly persecuting God's people. This view is the most popular amongst evangelicals today. And I'd like to note that these views are not entirely exclusive of one another. Some interpreters adopt an eclectic blend of different aspects of several views. So after the last year and a half, 
over the last year and a half, uh, Stonebrook's pastors and about a dozen others, we've been engaged in a pretty vigorous study of the end times. We read several books and we watched many hours of videos. We studied different perspectives. <clears throat> and I've really been helped by studying these different perspectives. I've been encouraged that, to see that there are really godly, Bible-believing people advocating really each of these views. And I've been challenged and even surprised with the strength of the arguments supporting some of the views that I don't hold to. After all, but after all the study, I, I continue to believe that the futurist view best fits the Scripture. But I carry it with a bit more humility and a bit more respect for the other views. And I'm letting you know where I'm at because I wouldn't be surprised. I'm, in fact, I'm confident that my perspective is going to leak out. It's going to come out as we study today and other times that I'll be speaking. So this morning, we won't have time to get into reasons why I still favor the futurist perspective. Um, that'll have to wait, perhaps again, for our panel discussions. So let's dive in now to chapter 6 after that long, hopefully not too confusing introduction. Last week in chapters 4 and 5, we saw an incredible vision of heaven. God sitting on his throne and living creatures ceaselessly, ceaselessly crying out, Holy, holy, holy. We saw elders bowing down to worship. From the throne comes lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, there's a scroll. But no one in all creation was found worthy to open the book, to open the scroll and activate the plan of God for the world. But then in the middle of this scene, this awesome, amazing scene, there's a slaughtered lamb that appears. And he's announced as the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, Israel's glorious, long-awaited Messiah King. And everyone, the living creatures, the innumerable angels all around, and indeed every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and everything in the sea fall down and worship the Lamb. So the Lamb has taken the scroll and he starts to break the seals. Let's read about it in chapter 6. Then I saw the Lamb open the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. This is the first of the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. But what does this figure represent? Some think the writer represents Christ as he leads the church to spread the gospel throughout the world and conquer people's hearts. But it seems a bit odd that the Messiah, the one opening the seal and instigating this plan of God, would commission himself to go to reach the world through the church. It's just a little odd. Additionally, the other three horsemen, as well as the coming trumpets and the bowls, they depict judgments of God on a rebellious world. So I think that this one probably would fall in line with that. So some would think that this writer represents the Antichrist going out to conquer the world. The Antichrist is a, a, a name 
often applied to the man of lawlessness found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and to the beast of Revelation 13, this king who opposes uh, God and gains the worship of all who reject God. But, but it could be that this first writer really might not represent an individual at all. It just could represent like the other three horsemen, conditions that come upon the earth with the breaking of the seal, conditions that somehow have to do with conquest. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so the people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. So the second rider represents war and bloodshed. With the opening of the second seal, peace will fail and war will come. Interestingly, he's giving a large sword, which may point to something extraordinary. There's always been wars, and there always will be wars until Christ returns, but it seems reasonable that this represents something extraordinarily intense and and devastating, perhaps something with a worldwide impact. And a futurist mind can easily go to the idea of all-out nuclear war, just a level of warfare that has never been seen before. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there was a black horse, and its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of dar- barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil or the wine. Of course, this writer represents poverty and famine. A quart of wheat for a denarius suggests a price about 12 times higher than normal. A denarius was a day's wage, and a quart of wheat was only enough to feed one person. So it would be impossible for a family to survive very long under these conditions. Let me give you an example, just for fun, of how some historicists matched this view to an historic event. In the third century, some emperors raised taxes so high that farmers, some farmers would actually burn their crops rather than pay the high taxes demanded. It just wasn't worth the effort to, to reap them. And so they would apply this to that, that period of history. Verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague and by the wild animals of the earth. This color described might be a yellowish green, perhaps a sickly, the color of a sickly person as compared to a healthy person. And the writer's name is Death, and he brings everything that the other horsemen brought, war and famine, but he, it adds pestilence and death by wild beasts that just run, are running rampant in the chaos of the time. And he's given authority to kill a fourth of the earth, Now, the word earth can also mean land. 
And those who link these passages to past events in Israel or to the destruction of the Roman Empire, they advocate this more local meaning, the land. But if John is using the word in its worldwide perspective, this could signify something truly extraordinary, likely beyond anything seen in human history. A quarter of mankind is killed. Notice that the severity of the devastation, devastation seems to increase as the seals unfold. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had, been, they had given. They cried out in a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed as just as they had been. So here we see martyrs calling out for vengeance. How long, how long, Lord, will it be? But who exactly are these martyrs? Revelation 13 says that the beast to come that he was permitted to wage war against the saints and to overcome them. He also compelled everyone on earth to worship him, and those who would not worship him were to be killed. Also in Revelation 20, John sees the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. <clears throat> and, that, and because they'd not accepted this mark of the beast on their, their forehead, they, would, they came to life and reigned for a thousand years. So you've got this theme of all these martyrs related to the beast. So it may be that these martyrs are the same group as those killed by the beast. But it's interesting that this description, at least here in chapter 6, it doesn't limit them to Christian martyrs. They were slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And of course, in the first century mind, just a few centuries prior, during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes over Judea, about 150 BC, thousands of Jews were martyred because they would not deny their faith. So perhaps these martyrs are crying out for vengeance. Maybe they consist of all the martyrs of every age up until the time that the fifth seal is opened. Verse 12, then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the faith, faith of the one seated on the lamb and from the wrath on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, because the great day of the wrath has come. And who is able to stand? It's hard to imagine 
a more terrifying scene. The world is falling apart. The earth is quaking. The sun and the moon have gone dark. The sky is splitting. The mountains are crumbling. The islands are sinking. The end has come. The end is here. And people know it. In terror, they know that they are about to stand before the God that they've ignored, the God that they've spurned, the God that they've hated. And there's nothing to do but shrink and cower before the face of the all-powerful and all-holy one who's filled with wrath because of the evil that they've done. Now, historicists have thought that this symbolizes the fall, perhaps the fall of paganism into Christianity or the invasion of Rome by the Goths and Vandals. Preterists have thought that this symbolizes the end of the Jewish state and the fall of Jerusalem. And those who take this as symbolic for something like the overthrow of a nation they point to the Old Testament and to prophecies that predict the fall of Jerusalem in 597 B.C. And, or the fall of Babylonism in 537 B.C. And notice that these prophecies include similar imagery, similar language like this. So they do have a point. But personally, I think that the cumulative effect of the imagery of this sixth seal seems to go way beyond the destruction of a nation or terrible economic conditions or political problems. People are cowering here before the face of God while the created order collapses around them, so terrified that they plead with the rocks and the mountains to bury them and hide them from his wrath. So assuming for a moment that this does depict the end of the world, it's pretty clear. Here's the sixth seal. It's the end. Why do we need a seventh seal? Why, why do we have all the seven bowls and the seven trumpets? And this brings us to the question of chronology. What is the chronology like in Revelation? Do the events symbolized, the events that will actually occur, do they, do they follow the same order as the vision itself or... Might there be some recapitulation, some retelling of a portion and filling in more of what's already been told? Many interpreters see a successive chronology like this. The first trumpet flows out of the seventh seal and the first bowl flows out of the seventh trumpet. Many others see a repeating chronology, perhaps like this. Every group of judgments depicts the same period. <clears throat> but since the individual seals and trumpets and bowls, they really don't line up that well, perhaps the repeating chronology might look something like this. Now, I think that a, a substantial case can be made for a repeating chronology. If you compare the last and, or nearly the last one in each of these series. 
Let's look at that. Each seems, to, each seems to be depicting the very end before God's final judgment. Each one has an earthquake. The sixth seal and the seventh bowl both have the islands and mountains removed. The seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl have nearly identical language. Lightnings, rumblings, thunder, an earthquake. They also both have hail. And both of them talk about this wine press, this uh, this evidently slaughter of people that it becomes almost like grapes being trampled, the wine press of God's wrath. So it may be that with each series of trumpets and bowls and seals, just more information is being given about the same time period. But let's go on to chapter 7. In this chapter, we see what might be call, called an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal. Let's read on. After this, I saw four angels standing by the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. These winds represent judgment. And let's see why. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east and who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until the seal of the servants of our God, until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. God restrained his judgment until he sealed his servants. It's a symbol of protection. The sealing here reminds us of the exodus from Egypt where the Israelites put blood on the doorposts to mark that they were followers of Yahweh and the angel of death passed over those houses. Or it reminds us of Ezekiel's vision right before the destruction of Jerusalem in 539 B.C., Ezekiel watched as an angel sealed all those who were faithful to God so that they would be spared from his wrath on the city and the nation. So here God puts a seal of ownership and protection on his servants. Verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, and the same number from Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. Now it's interesting that the tribe of Dan is missing. And many interpreters have noted this, and as well as the uniformity of the number and how it's 12 squared by 10 cubed or whatever, however that works out. <laughs> And they suggest that the 104,000, 144,000 is a symbol that perhaps represents all of God's people. Well, I have quite a bit of sympathy to the idea that 144,000 could be a symbolic number. But I think it's unlikely that this group refers to all of God's people. Firstly, Revelation 14 again mentioned these 144,000 and indicates that they are male virgins. I mean... That seems a strange way to symbolize all of God's people. How about the women? <laughs> How about male uh, men who are, are married? 
And I realized that virginity could, could be symbolized in this. I, virginity could, could symbolize the idea of abstaining from idolatry. That's possible. But still, I find it's a strange way to symbolize all of God's people. Secondly, Revelation 14 also says that they're the first fruits of humanity for God. In other words, they don't represent all those who will be redeemed, but only the first fruits, only a small portion of the harvest. Thirdly, they are specifically called Israelites. And this seems to be an obvious contrast with the group that we'll read about in just a moment. And this next group is an innumerable multitude from every nation, every tribe, people, and language, all worshiping the Lamb. And this multinational, very diverse group is, I think this is more likely to describe the broader people of God, whereas the 144,000 are said to be from only one nation. But let's read on. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language with no, that no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the angels asked me, Who are these people in white robes and where do they come from? It's asking the same question we have, right? <laughs> I said to him, Sir, you know, that's a pretty wise answer if you ask me. <laughs> then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the, in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So the elder says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. But what is the great tribulation? <laughs> there are different understandings. Preterists see it as the period of, of the destruction of Jerusalem. Historicists and idealists see it as the entire age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Futurists see it as a short period, likely seven years tying it in with the book of Daniel and other places in Revelation, prior to, to Christ's second coming. But whatever we think this great tribulation, wherever it matches the best, the, the most important point is that this group 
comes out of it safe, secure, unharmed. Now, John doesn't say that this great multitude is sealed, like he mentions, for the 144,000, but a good argument could be made that they are also sealed because they are present during this pause, during this time when God is restraining his judgment before the terrible judgments that we'll see next week and the trumpet judgments to come, the seven trumpet judgments. So they too may be sealed. But whichever, it's clear that they are, they are safe, they're secure, they're protected from the wrath of God. From this we can know that we can be absolutely sure that those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white, they will be protected from God's wrath because for them, God's wrath is falling on the Lamb. He was slain on their behalf. He took the penalty that they deserved. And this fact that the, those who believe in Christ will never experience God's wrath, it's, it's universally taught throughout the New Testament. Paul mentions in Romans 5, 9, since we have been justified by his blood, again, by his death, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through them, through him? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Also in 1 Thessalonians, for God did not appoint us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Peter agrees with this. First Peter, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Only grace for those who have believed in Jesus Christ, not wrath, only unmerited favor. As we continue in Revelation, we'll see that this doesn't mean that Christians won't suffer and that Christians won't be martyred. No, that's there too. But those who make their robes clean in the blood of the Lamb, they may experience the wrath of men, but they will never experience the wrath of God. Only His grace. So here at the conclusion of the sixth seal, we have this incredibly sharp contrast. <clears throat> we see those who have ignored, have resented, had rebe have rebelled against God, who have and who have refused, despite his calling them back, refused over and over again to repent. They will find themselves terrifyingly defenseless before the face of God and his holy justice and wrath, begging to be crushed by the mountains rather than stand before the face of the one who sits in the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. But how different are those who have believed in Jesus? 
those who have taken refuge in the Lamb, they'll have their, His name on their foreheads. They'll stand before Him with robes washed white with His blood. An amazing thing to look at. Blood doesn't usually make things white, but His blood does. Sheltered by God, shepherded by the Lamb, guided by the Lamb to the springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe every tear, every tear from their eyes. So each of us has a choice. Will we turn from our independence, from our indifference to God, from our rebellion, and believe in Jesus? Many of us have, but be sure that you have and that you are. (laughs) Have we washed our robes not with our own efforts, not with our own good works, but washed them in his blood, in his death? Will we trust in his death on our behalf? If we do, we will totally escape his wrath. He will shepherd us, guide us, and lead us to the waters of eternal life. So may it be. We're going to take communion now. This is just a great opportunity for us to remember what he's done for us. And to remember that it's his death. As we take the bread, we're remembering that his body was torn, that he was beaten, his flesh was, he was whipped, his flesh was torn open. And as we take the cup, we remember that his blood ran down that cross. And in that remembrance, we understand that he did this for us. He did this so that we would never have to experience the wrath of God. He took that in our place. So This is an opportunity that we have to join in with the angels, with the elders, with the living creatures, with all creation, and worship and honor the one who did this on our behalf, that we might be safe, that we might be free.